Well, there was a man who was arrested and brought before a judge one day for shooting a spotted owl. And the judge looked at this man and he said, Sir, didn't you know that spotted owls were on the endangered and protected species list? Yes, Your Honor, I did, said the man. He said, however, you see, I was lost in the woods and and I was growing faint with hunger and I was afraid that if I didn't kill and eat this owl that I might not live. The judge listening to this said, well, sir, given those circumstances, I can understand and I find you not guilty of violating the Endangered Species Act. And as the court was adjourned, the judge called the man over and he said, he said, you know, I'm curious. He said, he said, what did it taste like? And and the man said, well, it was somewhere between the taste of a whooping crane and a bald eagle. (laughs) Well, today we're going to be looking at the book of Ruth where a meal takes place. And what we're going to find is that while there were no endangered species on the menu, I'm afraid that the behavior that Boaz exhibits is one that is all too often on the endangered list, although it should be seen in our lives as Christians. I invite you to look with me at Ruth chapter 2, and I want to begin by reading verses 14 through 17. It tells us there, and at mealtime, Boaz said to her, this is Ruth, come that you may eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers, and she served, and, and he served her roasted grain, and she ate and was satisfied, and had some left. When she rose to glean, Boaz commanded his servants, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not insult her. And also you shall purposely pull out for her some grain from the bundles, and leave it, that she may glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening, then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley." Now, as you'll recall, as we've been going through Ruth, we've seen just all that has been happening between Boaz and Ruth, and he's been showing amazing grace to her, and here he adds even more to the list because he invites her to to join his workers for a meal. Now, we may think, what's the big deal? They're eating a meal together. But I want you to remember the cultural context. Eating a meal in this day was a sign of very intimate fellowship especially if you were dealing with somebody who was of a different nationality than you. As you read through the Bible, you see uh, what a big deal this was. In the book of Genesis, you'll recall that there was a man by the name of Joseph who was elevated to the second place of command in all of Egypt. He was Pharaoh's right-hand man, and yet you see that as high as Joseph was, those that he ruled over would not even eat with him. In Genesis 4.32, it says, So they served Joseph by himself and his brothers, other Jews by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat bread with the Hebrews, for that is loathsome to the Egyptians. Now, sharing a meal, as I said, was was a sign of intimate fellowship. What it said is, you're a part of us, which is why it became such a problem in the early church. You'll recall that some of the Jewish believers didn't want to eat with the Gentile believers. In Galatians two eleven through 13, it tells us, But when Cephas, this is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Paul's talking about two apostles having a, a vehement argument. Why did this happen? He says, Because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. Peter the apostle and even Barnabas, the man named the son of encouragement, 
was affected by the peer pressure of these Judaizers, Jewish Christians, who said you have to keep the law even after coming to faith. And, and the church was being split apart because of this until Paul came and he was courageous enough to say, look, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Jews and Gentiles are brought together. As you think about your own life, do you see others as equals and treat them as such? We're celebrating, as Will mentioned, Martin Luther King Day on Monday. A a man of God who stood for racial reconciliation to say that God sees us all as equal. Do we view one another as equal? Not just here, but in our actions. How how do we show uh, this to others? The Bible tells us God is no respecter of position or status. In 1 Samuel 16, 7, we're told that God sees our heart, not the externals, not our race, not the, the outside, the way we look, the way we dress, other things. And so why do we sometimes segregate ourselves, separate ourselves from one another? Do we set up little cliques even within the church that say, you can be in my group, but others can't? You know, when it comes to the church, may I remind you, brothers and sisters, that we're all part of the same group. We're all equal. We're all sinners who were far from God. We're all who were without hope, who were distant until Jesus Christ came and reconciled us to one another and to God. When it comes to the church, we're all of the same group. The the ground is level at the cross, and as those who have found forgiveness and been made a part of the family of God, why do we sometimes not make others feel welcome and a part of God? You know, as a whole, I think our church is a, is a very welcoming place. I hear from people all the time that this church is friendly. But I want you to think about this question and make it personal for a moment. If Wayside Chapel were based upon who you are as an individual and the way that you make others feel welcome, if everybody here was just like you, would Wayside be a welcoming church? God calls on all of us to be those who represent him. And as sinners who have been forgiven... God calls on us to make room for other sinners who are forgiven. Now, as we come to the cross, what God calls us to do is turn from our sin into him. If you've read John chapter 8, you recall there's a story there where the woman who was caught in adultery was brought to Jesus. And as Jesus looked at this woman, he said, I forgive you. But then what he did was he called her to true repentance. What he said is, go and sin no more. You see, Jesus accepts us as we are, but he loves us too much to leave us like we are. He calls on us to exercise true repentance, to turn from our sins and to walk in his ways. And that's what we're trying to do here at Wayside Chapel. For those of you who are looking for that as well, we welcome you to join us, to be a part of the family of God here as we all try to follow God. Now, if if we were to do what we've seen in the book of Ruth, last week I asked you to remember that, that God had shown his amazing grace to us and what it meant for us. And so as you think about that, those of us who were far from God, who were without hope, as the scriptures tell us, what would it be like if the next time we're tempted to turn our back on somebody because they're outside of our group or comfort zone, we remember how we too were far from God. And we say, I'm going to open the circle. I'm going to welcome others in. As we look at what Boaz is doing here, he was willing to extend grace to Ruth. And I think one part of the reason for this is if you know who Boaz is, as you look at his background, you see that he was somebody who remembered what it was like to be outside of the family of God. As he looked at his own family line, if you were to read Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, what you find there is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And in the genealogy, 
the great-great-great-grandmother of Boaz is listed. It tells us there that her name was Rahab. Do you remember Rahab from the book of Joshua? Rahab was called the harlot. We've seen how Ruth was wearing this name tag that said, Ruth the Moabitess, the outsider, the stranger. Well, Rahab used to wear a name tag as well that said the harlot, the pagan prostitute. And she too became a follower of the true God, Yahweh, and she was welcomed into the family of God. Now, we're told that she was the mother of Boaz, but she was not the direct biological mother. When you look at genealogies in the scripture, sometimes they pick and choose certain significant individuals. The book of Joshua was written and the events taking place there were about 300 years before this. So so she was in the line of Boaz. She was one of his ancestors. It's like what we read in Romans where it says that Abraham is our father. He's not our direct biological father. But he's of our line. And so I think that Boaz, as one who remembered what it was like to have his family excluded and outside, having received that mercy and grace, he was one who was quick to welcome others who were outside of the family. Now, I think sometimes what happens with us as believers, those who have come to faith in Christ, those who have been welcomed into the family, even here at Wayside, is we not only forget what it was like when we were brand new or when we were a stranger or an outsider, But sometimes what we do as well is we're worried that maybe if we extend grace to somebody else, that it's going to affect us. You see this in school situations where kids suddenly ostracize somebody who was part of an in-group because they show uh, grace to an outsider. And sometimes what we're afraid of is that people will begin to uh, paint us with that brush. You know, Boaz was running a risk here. It had been generations since his grandmother was outside of the family But there were still people who were more than willing to gossip and to look at him and say, well, you know, Boaz is only showing mercy to this foreigner, this outsider, because, you know, he's one of them as well. I mean, remember his his grandmother removed, she was a foreigner. In fact, she was a prostitute. Do you remember that? And Boaz standing in the community could have suddenly started to fall. But Boaz said, I don't care about peer pressure. I don't care about what others may say. I am going to do what God calls me to do. And he extended great grace to her. Rather than being silenced by fear or peer pressure, we read in verse 14 that Boaz said to Ruth, come here. Now, Ruth was probably standing at a distance. Remember, she was not part of the paid crew. She was this this person gleaning in the field. And we saw how Ruth viewed herself. Back in verse 13, she said, I don't belong. She said there, I'm not, I'm not one of your maidservants. She used the Hebrew word sippah here. And this was a word that literally meant the lowest of the lowest servants. She said, I'm not even worthy to be counted among the lowest of the low. But Boaz doesn't take no for an answer. As he coaxes her over, he says, come and sit down at the table. What we read here is that she sat beside the reapers. Now, the Hebrew word that's used here has the preposition men attached to it. And it gives it an unusual meaning, which literally means at the flanks of. So as you're trying to picture what the setup looked like, think about your home at Thanksgiving. If you've ever been at a Thanksgiving meal where the house is packed because there's family and friends that have come over, you know that typically you have all the adults at the main table, right? And what do you set up over in the corner? There's a little kiddie table, right? You remember the day when you got to move from the kiddie table up to the adult table? Well, what happens with Ruth is she doesn't even 
come and sit at the kiddie table. But she sits on the floor by it over in the corner. She's literally at the far reaches of the, the gathering of people because she says, I'm not worthy. And as she's sitting there over by the edges, I think of Luke chapter 14. There Jesus tells the parable of the meal. And he says, you know, if you think of a banquet table, there are people who jockey for position and they, they want to take the, the seats of honor. You know, the, there would be the, the master at the head of the table and you have these seats closest to him and this pecking order that goes down. And he warned the people of that day. He said, don't come in and take one of the places of honor because somebody more important than you might come in. And all of a sudden, the master will say to you, um, you're going to have to give up your seat and move down. Since all these other seats are taken, the kiddie table has a spot. You know, good luck over there. He said, take a lower seat of preference, and you will be honored, possibly, as you were brought up in status. Well, as we read this, Boaz doesn't move Ruth up to the head of the table, but he does something even more astonishing. Because what we read is, it says, and he served her roasted grain, and she ate and was satisfied and had some left. Now, this doesn't mean he just put the food on the table. It's in the singular form, which means Boaz served one person at this entire gathering. The picture is that he, the master, got up from the head of the table, and he took a choice portion of of this roasted grain, and he got up and he walked all the way around the adults, past the kiddie table, and he went over to the corner on the floor where she was seated. And he served her. He honored her, the master serving her. You know, as you look at this picture and let it linger for a minute, it's a lot like Philippians chapter 2, where it tells us that God left his throne in heaven to come to earth humbling himself, taking on flesh and blood as Jesus became man. And he humbled himself, not just the creator becoming part of the creation, but He humbled himself further, you'll recall, by becoming the lowest servant, washing the feet of the disciples. And then he went even further in his humility by taking the place of the lowest criminal, going to the cross to pay the penalty of death for you and me. That's what Christ did for us. And Boaz is doing that in this picture at a different level. He's doing what we are told in Philippians 2.5 where it says we are to have this attitude in ourselves which we saw in Christ Jesus. Boaz is demonstrating this. Now not only does Boaz bless Ruth with this demonstration of grace, but he also blessed her by giving her enough food to fill her up and even have some left over. Now most of us here have... Have, have so much food in the house. Our pantries are full. The refrigerator is full. We don't even think about this. You just pass right over this, don't you? But I want you to think about what you're reading here. It says that Ruth not only ate and was full, but she had food left over. You know, part of my story is that I, I grew up in a home where we had six kids. You've heard some of my background with my dad. My parents were immigrants to the U.S. from France and Canada. And, and we didn't have a lot of money. My dad was always out of work. They were struggling. And with so many mouths to feed, we, we grew up at or below the poverty level. And my dad was too proud to take food stamps. And there are nights I remember going to bed hungry as a child. And as I read this and I think about Ruth, her situation is so much more severe than what I faced. She's a woman, you'll recall, who has lost everything. They've traveled from Moab back to Bethlehem. She's out in the field scrounging for grain to feed her and Naomi. 
It's been a long, long time since she's had enough to eat that she's felt full, much less having food left over. And so you think about this, this great grace that is demonstrated to her. I want you to put your hands out like this for a moment. Hands out, palms up. Now look at your hands. And now what I want you to do is make a fist with them. Okay, which, which one can hold more? Your hand like this or your hand like this? Open palm, right? Unfortunately, many of us go through life like this. We grab everything. We want everything. We say, God, I can't trust you. I've got to do it myself. Or once we get something, we hold on to it. And what we end up doing is we block God's blessing. What God says is if you will open your hands, if you will allow me to put things in and to take things out, I can bless you beyond measure. But so many of us live life like this. Ruth lived life like this. She said, God, I am completely dependent upon you. I have nothing. And I have you to feed me and Naomi. And she lived like this. And we see God here once again filling her hands beyond measure. Now, Ruth was in this place of dependence. And we see that God filled her hands to the point of overflowing. She's satisfied and she has a to-go box. She has a doggy bag to boot. Now, as you think about this, she could have gone home right at this moment. She's been working all day. She's full. She has food. The grain she's gathered, she has food in a, in a doggy bag. How many of you have ever done hard day labor type of work? You know, when I was in college, I worked my way through college, one of the things I did was in the summers I worked construction and landscape. And I remember what it was like to go out early in the morning before the heat would get going. And you would work and work until it got really hot, somewhere around lunchtime. And then you would finally take a break. And as you sat down, and and for the first time you stopped moving, and you ate a meal, and you were sitting in the shade, it was hard to get back up and go to work the second part of the day. And think about Ruth. Here is this young woman who has not been a day laborer her whole life, She's in agrarian society. She's done some, but now she's having to work just to eat. And we saw earlier in the story, she got up, she went out. She's been working in the fields all day. The foreman, remember, said she's a hard worker. She's just now taking that first break. And so Ruth has now stopped at the heat of the day. She's for the first time had a full stomach. She's sitting there just, just want to take a nap. She could have taken everything she gathered and went home and said, you know, I'm going to be back tomorrow and and I'll start the day again. But instead of calling it quits, we read in verse 15, she rose to glean. Ruth gets up and she goes back to the field. Now notice it's before any of the other workers get up and start moving. Because as she gets up and goes to the field, what does Boaz do? He, he talks to all the workers that are assembled. They're still on their break time. Hey, they're on the clock. They're not going to put in one minute more than they need to. And so Boaz says to them, as she's, he says, look at this woman. Look at her working hard. He says, this is what we're going to do to help her. Let her glean even among the sheaves. And do not insult her. And also you shall purposely pull out for her some grain from among the bundles and leave it that she may glean and do not rebuke her. You know, what we saw last time, you remember, is Leviticus 19, God set up working welfare by saying when you had a field, people could come and glean the corners of the field, the remnants, the outer areas. But Boaz, as we saw, had elevated her status. He said, you come into the heart of the field, you come behind the reapers, and you collect grain there. 
And we talked about the danger of having the, the cut grain piled where she could have stolen from the piles, but, but she was a trustworthy woman. Boaz says, you let her come in. Well, now he says, we're going to up the level even more. This is what Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 19 tells us. When you reap your harvest in your field and have forgotten a sheaf in the field, it means you've gone through, you've loaded. You know, I bailed hay on trucks before too, and every now and then, you know, there was a, something left in the field, and you'd go back out there in the pickup and pick it up. Well, what, what he says here is, you know, as you're gathering up the sheaves, God says, and maybe you accidentally forgot one of these bundles of grain, you have to leave it. Don't go back and get it. But what Boaz is doing is going above this because it says you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. You see, what Boaz says is, I want you to to make sure there's stuff left in the field. I want you to purposely be dropping these things so as she comes along behind, there will be an abundance of food for her to gather. Verse 17 says, so she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. Now the end of the day comes, and Ruth's work is not over, because she has to process. It's one thing to gather the stalks of grain, but then what you had to do was beat these heads of grain, either with a stick or against the ground. If you had a large amount, you would run threshing uh, sledges over them, because what you had to do was get the actual grain out of the stalks, and then you had to sift it get the chaff and the dirt and the the debris out, and then you would have the actual grain that she would bag. So Ruth has worked all day, passed through lunch, into the evening, and now as everybody else is going home because there's a different crew that will process the grain, Ruth is still working. And as she does so, what we're told is she collects an ephah. Now that's 30 pounds of processed grain. That's an enormous amount of grain. As you read through the ancient text, uh, the extra-biblical literature tells us that the ration of food that a full-grown adult male, working male, and that day would receive in times of plenty was two pounds of grain a day. Ruth went out that morning hoping to get a couple of handfuls to make just a, a little cake to eat for her and Naomi. And now she has enough to feed Naomi and herself for weeks. Again, we see the abundance of God's blessing. Verse 18 says, and she took it up and she went into the city and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also took it and gave it to Naomi, what she had left after she was satisfied. Now, switch scenes for a moment and put yourself in Naomi's position. Remember the last time we saw Naomi, it was morning, it was dark. Ruth was getting ready to go into the field. We saw how tired Naomi was. And she knew she should go with Ruth because there would be safety in numbers. But Ruth had told her, you stay home and rest. So Naomi's been there all day. She's worried. You know, it's hot. It's hard work in the field. And Naomi, I'm sure, expected Ruth to show up sometime around lunch, as we already talked about. Oh, honey, you've worked hard all day. You just rest now. But now it's late in the evening. The last light is fading. Naomi's been pacing the floor. She's looking out the window, checking out the door. Where is she? What's happened? she'd been molested in the field like I thought might happen? Did she faint from heat or hunger? And as that thought crosses her mind, suddenly Naomi's own stomach rumbles with hunger. And she feels guilty because she's thinking now of how hungry she is and, and, and she thinks about Ruth and what she must be feeling. And she's worried as she's looking out the window, suddenly she sees a shadow approaching and she's 
peering into the darkness, she recognizes it's Ruth. And she goes running out to her. And as she comes out to Ruth, she sees this, this bag of grain and she can't believe her eyes. Her, her mother-in-law then said to her, where did you glean today? And where did you work? May he who took notice of you be blessed. You see, Naomi says, there's no way you, you could have done this all on your own. She says, I know there's a story behind it, but if she sees the food and she thinks of her own hunger, she says, you know, let's go inside and make a meal. And, oh, Ruth, you sit down and, and rest. You've been working hard all day. I'll, I'll grind the flour. I'll make a cake. I'll, I'll bake it. And as Naomi's going into this whirlwind of, of preparation, Ruth says, Naomi, no, no, you sit down and rest. I've got dinner already. And she reaches in and she pulls out this bag of the roasted grain. Now, as you think about that, remember that Ruth has been working since lunch again. She's worked late into the night. She would have been hungry again. She could have easily eaten the rest of this meal that had been prepared, this treat that she received. One day I walked through the door of my house and, and I had been out in the car and I, I had driven through McDonald's drive-in and I got some French fries about an hour before I came home and I had eaten these and I walked through the door my kids come running up to hug me and as they did they were like a little pack of Labrador retrievers because all of a sudden they start you know they're sniffing me and, and one of my daughters says daddy lean down here and I said yeah honey she said open your mouth and, and she goes you ate McDonald's french fries she said where's ours you know Ruth walks through the door And she had this treat, this roasted grain. She could have scarfed it all down herself. Have any of y'all ever done that? Gotten a little treat, and rather than share, you eat it all yourself. But here again, we see the great grace and care that Ruth has for Naomi. She said, I've got this this box of chocolate, so to speak, and I want to share it with Naomi. I'm going to hold this back. And so she comes through the door, tired and worn out, and she says to, to Naomi, I went through the drive through and, and I've got the meal all ready. And as these ladies sit down to eat, Ruth says, she, she answers the question finally. She says, the name of the man with whom I work today is Boaz. Now, hearing this, you can picture Naomi dropping her fork. Because in verse 20, she says, may he be blessed of the Lord who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and to the dead. Again, Naomi said to her, this man is our relative. He is one of our closest relatives. Now here she gives a double blessing. It seems she's only speaking of Boaz. But what she's doing here in the scriptures is she's blessing both God and this man, Boaz. She says, God has not withdrawn his kindness Do you remember this word? His hesed. This is the word again. His loving kindness, his mercy, his loyalty, his faithfulness, his commitment. God has not withdrawn his loyal love. She she says, the Lord, all capital letters. This is the personal covenant name, Yahweh. You know, this is quite a change from Ruth 120. Do you remember the last time she talked about God in 120? She... Naomi said, don't call me pleasant, Naomi. Call me Mara, bitter. Because the Almighty, Shaddai, God, has treated me unfairly. Now she's no longer saying God is unfair. Instead, she says, he's showing his 
unmerited kindness, his great grace, his great love to us. Now, you can say, well, you know, a little food in your stomach when you're hungry sure helps. But the focus here is not on the food. The focus here is on Boaz. There's a deep change of heart because when she hears the name Boaz, she says this man is our relative. She uses the word karav. It it means a near or a close relative. She goes on, she says, he's even a closer relative. He is a goel. This is a word that's very significant in this book. It's found in this form or a root of it 20 times in the book of Ruth. And this is the first time that this word is attached to the name of a person. This is the turning point in a story. If you were watching a soap opera, suddenly this would be like the pinnacle moment. You know, the story is about to change. She says, he's, he's our closest relative. She, she uses this word goel, which means literally the kinsman redeemer. It means to set free, to liberate, to redeem. As you read through the scriptures, the kinsman redeemer in a family was the blood avenger. If, if there was a, a person who had been killed in the family, this was the one who went out to right the wrong. This was the person who would set you free if you were imprisoned, sold yourself into slavery because of a debt you owed. This is the one who would pay to redeem you, to take you back off the block of a slave. This is the person who, who was the family savior, so to speak. She says of him, he is our Goel. Remember the Leverite marriage we talked about? She says, God has shown his mercy to both the living and the dead, to Elimelech, my husband, to your, your, your husband who has died. The Goel was the one who would come in and would marry the widow and raise up the heir, this Leverite marriage. This is the person who would redeem the family. And here it's the pivot point in the story. Naomi goes from hopelessness to hope. That day began where they didn't even know if they would have enough food to eat. And suddenly she's saying, we may have security long term. This may be the man. Lamentations 3.22 through 23 tells us the Lord's loving kindness, his hesed, indeed never ceases. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. You know, as night falls here, what looked like darkness and despair, suddenly there's hope. The little ray of sunshine as she sees his bag of food suddenly turns into a full-blown sunrise. And as we look, it's not just the next day that has got bright hope, but in verses 21 through 23, we're actually told not just about a new day, but a period of several months. Do you remember when we looked at the story, the barley harvest, I told you, began around March and April, which would then be followed by the wheat harvest, which went through June and July. And as you look at verse 23, we see both of these periods pass. It says, so she stayed close by the maids of Boaz in order to glean until the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Suddenly, we've gone from a full focus on a 24-hour period to months that have passed by. We're not told anymore how much did Ruth glean, what was her days like, because God says this is no longer the focus. The center of the story is no longer on will they have enough food to eat for the day, but the focus is now on who is the Redeemer. As you sit here today, where's your focus? Is it on the day-to-day details of life? Are you sitting here right now thinking about what you're going to eat for lunch? Is Roger done yet? Is it time to go to lunch? Are you thinking about what work is going to be like on 
Monday or Tuesday if you have Monday off? Are you focused on the day-to-day details of life? Or are you thinking long-term about eternal life and about a redeemer named Jesus Christ who came to give you and I the great gift of eternal life? As you look at Naomi, which situation describes you best? Are you somebody who has no hope? Are you the person of chapter 1 who says, The Lord has been unfair to me. He's been against me. Are you sitting here this morning thinking of some hard news that you've received? That you're sick or a loved one you have is terminally ill? Is that your focus? Are you worried about your finances, how you're going to pay your bills, or whether or not you're going to have a job after the next round of layoffs? Are you struggling with something in school or or maybe a relationship that's broken? Where's your focus this morning? Is it on the day-to-day details of life or are you looking long-term to the greatest need you and I will ever have, the need of our Goel, our kinsman redeemer, the one who will buy us back, the one who will take us off the slave block and redeem us and make us a part of the family of God. Here we see that God is at work. He's raised up a Goel, Ruth started out as a stranger, a foreigner on the far flanks of a meal. But suddenly there's the the ray of hope that she's about to be made a part of the family. She is going to be one who is not just satisfied and full at one meal, but she's one who is looking to a future where her needs are met. As we talk about our need for a redeemer, it was God who was satisfied in full when Jesus came to save us. Do you realize that? We think sometimes of God sending the Goel, the Redeemer, to save us. But God sent the Goel, the Redeemer, Jesus Christ, to satisfy him, himself. 1 John, 2, 1 through 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 tell us this. My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, that's all of us, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Now this word propitiation is a really big word. It's the Greek word halismas. It was used in the Old Testament of the mercy seat, the covering of the ark where the blood would be applied, the sacrifice that was owed behind the, the veil in the Holy of Holies. And it says that Jesus Christ is our satisfaction, the propitiation. If you look up this word propitiation in an English dictionary, it will tell you that it means to appease someone who is angry. Now, while that's a part of the meaning, it doesn't fully cover the meaning of the Greek word holismos. Because if if this were the only part of the meaning of the word, when you read John 3.16, it wouldn't say, for God so loved the world. It'd say, God was so angry at the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God does hate sin, but he loves us as sinners. And so when we read that Jesus is the propitiation, it's what 1 John 4.10 tells us. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This word holismos means satisfaction as in satisfying the requirements of God's holy law. Romans tells us the wages of sin is death. What we have earned by our lives is not being good enough to get to God. 
It says, what we've earned by living our lives as sinners is death, eternal separation from God. But then Romans 6.23 goes on to say, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He became our propitiation, the one who paid the penalty for our sins. To understand fully what this word propitiation means, I want you to think of a, a factory worker who's, who's on a line and suddenly the machinery malfunctions and, and this individual is, is tragically hurt. They're rushed to the hospital and the doctors are, are able to save this individual's life, but the person has been mangled. They're partially paralyzed. They, they have lifelong injuries. An investigation is done into the accident, and what they find is that the machinery malfunctioned because the company cut corners and didn't maintain it properly. And so the company is at fault for the injury of this worker. A lawsuit is filed, a court case goes to trial, and the jury awards the individual millions of dollars to take care of their medical bills, to take care of their pain and suffering. This individual is partially paralyzed the rest of their life. And so as they're sitting at home, broken as they are, they have all the money they need to take care of their physical needs. And what the courts say is that this case has now been expiated. Expiation means to meet the demands of justice paying the penalty owed. When the company pays the settlement, the legal fees, and the the pain and suffering and all the things to the individual, the plaintiff, expiation has occurred. The requirements of the law are done. However, propitiation has not occurred. Remember, propitiation means to appease somebody who is angry, to remove the wrath. This individual, as they sit at home, as, as a broken person, now every time they hear the name of the company, every time they see a product made by it, they feel bitter, they feel angry. My life has been ruined by this company and their negligence. What propitiation means is not only this, satisfying the demands of justice, but it also removes the wrath. Satisfaction along with reconciliation. Propitiation means that the relationship has been restored. May I remind you, brothers and sisters, those of us who have come to faith in Christ, we were sinners, far from God, enemies of his, in rebellion. And God sent the Goel, Jesus Christ, to take our place and pay the penalty of sin and death, not just removing the legal requirement, but then the relationship was restored. And we were made a part of the family of God, adopted as sons and daughters, not outsiders who sit in a corner of heaven where every time God passes by us, he goes, but he says, come crawl up in my lap. Call me Abba, Daddy. That is what Jesus Christ did for us. Our Redeemer brought about satisfaction of the law as well as reconciliation of the relationship. As you think about your life today, do you need a Goel? You know, when we walk through the gates of heaven, we're told that Satan is there to accuse us on the judgment day. And he'll, say, he'll point and he'll say, Roger's a sinner. He doesn't belong here, God. You're, you're a holy God. You're a just God. You can't allow sinners in your presence. And then Jesus Christ, our advocate, the word means our attorney, will stand at the trial and he will show his hands with the nail-pierced scars He'll show his side, he'll show his feet, and he'll say to Satan, our accuser, you have no claim here. The penalty has been paid, I covered it. The relationship is restored. 
Roger and the rest of you who have come to faith are welcome as a part of the family. John 1.12 tells us, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in him. Friends, have you received Jesus Christ as your Savior? Have you been made a part of the family of God? We were all strangers. We were all at the fringe, far on the flanks. And Jesus Christ left heaven to come to earth, to go to the cross, to pay our penalty of sin, to restore the relationship. If you're here today and you've never come to faith in Christ, what the scriptures say is that all we need to do is come to the cross and to say to God, God, I recognize I'm a sinner. I've been far from you. I've been in rebellion. And today, God, I'm repenting. I'm turning from my old way and I'm turning to you. Jesus, I'm accepting you as my savior. Thank you for paying my penalty. Thank you for making me a part of your family. If you've never taken that step of faith, I invite you to do so today. To say that to God, I'm a sinner and I want to come home. Thank you for covering the cost at the cross. Thank you for making me a part of the family. And for the rest of us who have already found his forgiveness, there is a world out there that is starving to see what the love of God looks like. There are people where you work, in your schools, on your street at home that are far from God. They are on the fringe. They are on the outside wanting to know, how can I get in? Not so much to get into heaven, but even into your group, even just to feel loved, to feel forgiven. Are we going to be like Boaz? Are we going to be those who, having found forgiveness ourselves, will open the door and will say to others, you are welcome here. This is how you come home. This is how you become a part of our family, through faith in the one who came to die for you and me. Will you join me, please, as we close in prayer? Oh, great and merciful God, we thank you for your great love for us. Your love that caused you to leave heaven and to come to earth to take our place, going to the cross, to pay that penalty of sin and death. Lord Jesus, we thank you for being our great Goel, our Redeemer, the one who would not only pay the penalty, but the one who would pave the way home and restore the relationship the one who would give us the privilege of becoming children, part of the family. Lord God, I pray that if there's anyone here today who has not yet taken that step of faith, that today would be the day that they would say to you, God, I'm coming home, I'm a sinner. And Jesus, today I receive your great gift of new life. Help me to turn from my sins and to walk with you. Father, for the rest of us who have received that great gift, May we be those who live in great thankfulness and gratitude. Not just for the gift of eternal life, but Father, recognizing the many other gifts you give to us. The day-to-day details of life are, are real. And they're ones that you're concerned with. You feed us. You clothe us. You give to us what we need. And so, God, we thank you for your great grace. Help us, Lord, as we leave here today to be individuals in a church that will welcome others who are outside, those who need to know your sin. May we be those who carry the good news with us as we go out the door today. We pray this in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You see prayer leaders at the front. If you have a need in your life to know the Lord or some other need, they're here to pray with you. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. You're dismissed.